The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. When Gary said we're doing Revelation, I thought, oh no, this is going to be the hard part of Revelation. And so if you're expecting, if you're expecting in this series to hear about the Antichrist and Armageddon and the Mark of the Beast, uh, Gary has promised to do a series on that at a later date. Um, not sure when, <laughs> but uh, this is just Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that we're looking at for this series. And in this series, we've been looking at um, the, uh, there's seven churches in Asia Minor. And so um, John gets this vision in Revelation chapter 1. He gets a vision on the Isle of Patmos in the Mediterranean. And the first church that Gary talked about, so Jesus gives a message to John to give to these seven churches. And the first one that we talked about was church at Ephesus. And they were known for right beliefs, but having no love. Then last week was Smyrna. We discussed Smyrna last week. And they were one of the only two churches that Jesus didn't have a rebuke for. He just gave them a commendation and an encouragement. And that was the church at Smyrna. They were living faithful in the midst of persecution. So today we come to the church at Pergamum, all the way up there to the top. And this is the western coast of what is now Turkey. This is Asia Minor. And what's really alarming is if, if you think of Turkey today, Turkey has 76 million people there today. Only 0.3% are Christian. It's astounding. And I say that because that should be cause for alarm for us. Because we can't take for granted this, the gospel. We can't take for granted living on mission. Because there are 76 million people in this country today, and that was once the center of the church that was once the center of where it was all happening in the church. And now the church is basically non-ex- almost non-existent in that culture today. And so our work is never done. Our work is never finished. We should always be living on mission in whatever culture we find ourselves in. And so look with me at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him, that's Jesus, who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And so I want to give you some background about the city of Pergamum. I want to give you a picture of what this place looks like today. This is the ruins of their temple mount and also an amphitheater. Anyone here ever been to the city of Pergamum in Turkey? Anyone? Raise your hand real high. Kind of dark in here. So there was like two guys at the last service, I think, that had visited this location. And so here's a picture of the city. This place is known for having lots of wealth in its history, lots of prosperity, Alexander the Great supposedly stored about a billion dollars worth of gold in this city. Uh, And as you can see, it's kind of perched up high on a hill, and so it's a great place for defense. It's like a fortress and really hard for someone to attack. And so they kept lots of gold and lots of wealth there in the city. Pergamum also had a library with 200,000 books. You may have heard about a man named Mark Antony. And when I say Mark Antony, I mean... The one on the left, not the one on the right. So the one that liked Cleopatra, not J-Lo, all right? And uh, so um, this is Mark Anthony. He was one of Julius Caesar's generals. And as a gift, he gave this library of 200,000 books to his wife, Cleopatra. So hopefully she liked to read, right? Not sure how romantic that is, but if you're planning on getting engaged soon, stick with the ring, right? Don't buy her books. But um, he gave her books for a wedding gift, Um, this library, this huge library there in Pergamum. This place was also a city full of entertainment, idol worship. They had a healing center, which was dedicated to the god of Asclepius. 
Asclepius was known as the god of healing, and for some reason they had him associated with a snake. A snake was a symbol of healing in that culture. And what they would do is they would, if you were sick, they would take you and put you on the floor of the temple, and they would cover you in snakes so that snakes could, could transmit their power to you. So how's that for a prescription, right? Anyone want to sign up for that? And so uh, this is what they would do for people that were sick. It's hard for us to relate snakes with healing, isn't it? Because if you see a snake on your property, what are you going to do? Kill it. Every service has been right on. Kill it. That's the right answer. And recently I saw a snake on my sidewalk at my house, and so I went and got a pickaxe and took care of business, right? That's what you do. You know, we don't typically think of snakes, we don't relate them to healing, but in that culture, they did. And so what's interesting is, if you look at medical symbols today, um, there's a snake. And some people might say, well, that's a reference to Numbers 21, where Moses held the bronze serpent in the wilderness, and uh, they were healed because of that. So there's some controversy about this. But many people would say that the symbol of the snake today refers back to Asclepius, Greek mythology, and their culture. And the center of the worship of Asclepius was, was, uh, was there in Pergamum. When I was a kid, my town would have an annual parade, much like you have here in Belton or Temple. And I would see these ambulances go down the street. And I thought as a kid, I was like, why, why, why is there a snake on the side of an ambulance? Oh, wait, I know. Because if you get bit by a snake, <laughs> ambulance comes and gets you, right? And so, but it really goes back to this idea of, of the God of healing, Asclepius. And uh, how many of you here work in the medical field? Raise your hand. Raise your hand real high. All right. Uh, so even the Scott and White symbol has some hidden snakes. Can you see them? So I never actually noticed that until I studied for this series. But so this town, I tell you all this to show you this town has, they have wealth. They have prosperity. They have a lot going for it economically. They're a spiritual center. They're a spiritual community. They are a progressive culture. And what can happen in a town like that very often is that the Christians begin to compromise. The Christians begin to accommodate to the culture around them. And so look at the first words of Jesus right out of the gate. In verse 12, he says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is important because what Jesus does at the beginning of each one of these little mini letters is he refers back to an image of himself in chapter 1. And so why does he hone in on just that one little aspect of the image of this is the words of him, that's me, Jesus, who has the sharp two-edged sword? Because whenever you and I read this verse, what picture of Jesus do we get? This is a picture of Jesus who is ready to come and bring judgment and punishment upon this church, who is accommodating to their culture, who is compromising to their culture. This goes against the picture that many of us have of Jesus at a young age, right? Most of us think of Jesus, we think of this picture right here, right? You may have had a picture like that on your wall at home or like in Sunday school, but this is the image that we put on classroom walls, right? We don't get the sword coming out of his mouth, Jesus, with the little kids, do we? We don't do that. We give them this picture of Jesus, and the problem is they begin to Think of this Jesus as just some wimpy, tame, Sunday school Jesus. I call this Sunday school Jesus. Also known as uh, 
as flannel graph Jesus, right? Or Pantene Pro-V Jesus, right? I mean, I, I just don't think Jesus ever had a pet lamb. I just don't think he did. I don't think he walked. I mean, that, that's, that's like a creepy version of Jesus, right? Some guy walking around town, stroking a baby lamb, asking guys to follow him. I mean, that's just creepy, right? And so we have this image in our mind of, of this Jesus from our, 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 our young age. And then as some people get older, they have people, some people, about, about 10 years ago, there were these t-shirts that people would wear, and it would say, Jesus is my homeboy. Remember those? Anybody have one of those? Raise your hand, please. Yes. But this was... But the idea is that Jesus is my friend, he's my buddy, he's my pal, he's my homeboy. Or we have this Sunday school version of him that's sort of tame, wimpy. He's just our cheerleader, our buddy, our pal. And so Jesus paints this picture of himself that totally flies in the face of how many of us grow up viewing and knowing Jesus. Because most of us see Jesus as just, he's just grace, he's just love, he's compassion, which he is all of those things, but we forget that he's also judge and king. We forget he also means business. We forget that he's standing over this church ready to wreak havoc on a church who is accommodating to their culture and compromising in their city. And so we have to understand that if you're going to have a Jesus who is gracious and loving and merciful and compassionate, you've also got to know he's also a judge, he's also a king. And those things are not polar opposites. Those things go together. They complement one another. And so this church is taking sin lightly, and so Jesus shows them that he means business. And I think it's only because Jesus is judge and king that he's able to be merciful and gracious and compassionate and loving These things complement. They're not polar opposites, like many of us may think. I think many times we think of grace and mercy as some kind of a wimpy Christ, a permissive Christ, a permissive Jesus. And we don't take sin seriously. I mean, think about that. If If you're walking with Christ, and if this is the image that you have of Jesus Christ, I mean, how serious are you going to take that, right? Like, how serious are you going to take that Jesus when it comes to sin and righteousness and holiness. And so we have to understand that Jesus, we cannot see grace as some wimpy thing. Because at the center of grace, at the center of mercy and compassion, there is this broken, bruised, bloodied, murdered Messiah. And there's nothing wimpy about that. There is nothing tame about that. Jesus is not some wimpy Jesus. He is, a, he is Jesus. He is God. He is king. He is judge. He is king. And so even as he stands ready to carry out judgment on this church in Pergamum, he still has something positive to say in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so in verse 13, he brings his commendation to them. Actually has some good things to say after saying, hey, I'm Jesus with a sword in my mouth. And so he, what is he commending them for? What happened in their culture? This first sounds like a rebuke, doesn't it? 
It sounds like he's saying, I know where you live, where Satan lives. But what he's really getting at is, I know what it's like where you live. I know what it's like to be in the wilderness of Pergamum. I know what it's like when you're trying to stand up to an emperor who is saying, bow down to me and worship me. I am God. And so these people in Pergamum have have somehow, in spite of their compromise in other areas, they have somehow stood up to the pressure of the empire and said, no, we're still going to name Jesus as Lord. We're still going to name Jesus as Savior. And so they somehow haven't compromised in that particular area of their church. So he's actually encouraging them here and not, for not denying him. It mentions a man named Antipas. Antipas was a man, he was a Christian man, and they captured him, the city there captured him, and put him inside of a bronze bull, and then roasted him alive. So like a human crockpot, Antipas has time, he is suffering inside this bull, and he has time to recant, time to confess that Caesar is Lord, Jesus is not Lord, and he, did not, he never recanted. And so the people of this city, they saw that firsthand, and in spite of that kind of intimidation, they still did not reject and say that Jesus is no longer Lord. So in this one area, Jesus commends them and says, hey, you're at least still naming me as Lord. You're at least still naming me as your Lord instead of Caesar. You're to be commended for that. But then in the next verse, verse 14, Jesus brings the backhand. Here we go. Verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what's he getting at here? There's some strange names here. We've got Balaam, Balak, Nicolaitans. Who are these people? If you go back to Numbers chapter 22 and 24, uh, don't turn there now, but you can read it on your own later on, but Balaam was a false prophet who led Israel into idol worship and also sexual immorality. So it's believed that this is the, represents the moral compromise. So the spirit of Balaam was alive and, and well in Pergamum and in their church. And then the Nicolaitans, there's some controversy as to who these people are, but their error was more doctrinal in nature. So you have moral compromise and doctrinal compromise in this church. The Nicolaitans would be people that would say, it's possible to still be a Christian but to still embrace idolatry. There was syncretism, cultural accommodation going on in this church in Pergamum. And so these people had one foot in both worlds. They would say on the one hand, yes, we follow Jesus. Jesus is our homeboy. We follow him. We still name Jesus. We claim to follow Jesus. But it's still okay to go down to the pagan temple and worship idols. It's still okay to go to the pagan temple and engage with prostitutes in the cults. And so they've withstood pressure from the outside, but they have caved to pressure on the inside of their church. And so their compromise is twofold. It's both moral and it's doctrinal. And if you look throughout history, moral compromise usually follows doctrinal compromise, doesn't it? My wife and I will often uh, watch some of these shows that come on late at night where they shows about uh, cults of of many years ago throughout the U.S., other parts of the world. And it's amazing how the moment someone begins to compromise doctrinally, it always leads to moral compromise. At the heart of almost any cult or sect you can think of, 
there is sexual immorality. And I don't think it's coincidence. Because moral compromise is always followed by doctrinal compromise. I want you to look at verse 14 one more time. There's one main point I want you to see here. He says, Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Here's the main point I want you to see in that part of the passage. If you and I claim Christ, but we choose to openly, defiantly, rebelliously turn our back on God, and I'm not referring to Christians struggling with sin. There's a difference between struggling with sin and walking in it. But if you and I, if we name the name of Christ, and we claim to follow him, but we choose to openly, defiantly rebel against him, he will come against us. And so Jesus says, I'm going to come against you. And this is not some Sunday school version of Jesus. This is Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. A Jesus who means business. A Jesus who takes sin seriously. And so John Piper writes this next quote. He says, The Christ of the Bible is an authoritative advisor as well as an atoning Savior. So if we try to receive him as an atoning Savior, but reject him as an authoritative advisor, all we receive is an imaginary Christ while rejecting the Christ of the Bible. Sometimes what we do is we want his forgiveness, but not his authority. We want his salvation, but not his guidance. And what we do is we split Jesus down the middle. We say, I'm going to take what I want from you, and I'm going to get rid of what I don't want from you, Jesus. And so this is a divided Christ. This is not a real Christ. This is an imaginary Christ. And this is what Pergamum is guilty of. They claim Christ, but they reject his authority. And so um, I want to ask a major question for the rest of our time this morning. And it's this question, how might we become like Pergamum? What are some of the traps that we can fall into as a church as we might be tempted to accommodate and compromise with the culture around us? Because the church at Pergamum, they had some good deeds. They still named the name of Christ. That's a good thing. But they had bad doctrine. They had bad belief. And I want to remind you, this is, this is kind of like the opposite of Ephesus, right? And so I want you to picture a pendulum up here on the stage. I don't have one. Uh, to use, but just picture this with me. A pendulum, if you pull a pendulum really far that way, the further you pull it that way, the further it will swing that way, right? And so picture on one side, Ephesus. On this side, you've got Ephesus, and they're the church that they're all doctrine, all belief. They like to read. They're book nerds. They love that stuff, but they have no love and compassion, grace and mercy for those around them. They have no love for God. Christ says you've lost your first love. They don't love each other. They also don't love God. On this side, you've got Pergamum. They are sort of light on doctrine, light on belief. doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you say you follow Jesus. But when it comes to um, sin issues, they're all like, yeah, man, as long as you claim Christ, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do. If, if, if God says something sinful, I mean, I mean, we can negotiate that. And so you have these two polar opposites, Ephesus on one side, Pergamum on the other side. And what can happen in our culture today 
is that as Christians act like Ephesus, all truth and no love, some people overreact to that and become just like Pergamum. I think we see this especially when it comes to a very controversial topic like the topic of homosexuality in our culture today. And so if you can picture this, Ephesians would have called that sin. They would have said, no, it's sin. We're going to call it sin. We're going to stand our ground here in the area of sin. But they would have lacked compassion, grace, mercy, love as they shared that with someone. I heard a pastor say one time, sometimes you're so right that you're wrong. You can be so right in what you believe and and be correct in your stance on truth, but the way you communicate that, your tone that you use, the way that you communicate that with people is sinful and wrong. That would be Ephesus. On this side, Pergamum, with a topic like homosexuality would have said, you know, I mean, as long as you claim the name of Christ, as long as you say you follow him, I mean, that's, that's good. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do sexually. And so you can see how they, this would play out in our culture today. And so people tend to see the sin of Ephesus, overreact, and adopt the sin of Pergamum as a response. G.K. Beale in his commentary on, on Revelation, he says this, Pergamum is indicted for harboring a group of compromisers. An overemphasis on internal doctrinal purity can lead to a lack of concern for the outside world. That's Ephesus. Whereas a de-emphasis can lead to an over-identification with the world. And so one thing I think I see in our culture today is that we don't just compromise, but we do it in the name of compassion. And so if there's one thing I can say to you today, it's this next statement. In our effort to be compassionate, we cannot embrace sin. In our effort to be compassionate and loving and gracious and merciful, we cannot budge on truth. We cannot embrace sin and accommodate to the culture around us. In fact, a few years back, actually many years back now, I had this girl in my youth group, and she, I think she was a junior at this point in her time with our high school ministry, and she was starting to take on some leadership roles that we had for students at that time and really get into leadership of our, part of our ministry. And she was a very gracious, merciful, compassionate girl, had lots of friends. And then one night I'm on Facebook just scrolling through my news feed, and I realized that this girl has posted photos of herself and her friends at a gay pride parade in Austin. And I started to think, well, you know, I want to first love her well and find out, hey, where are you at? And so we contacted her and said, hey, can you come talk to us? She she came and talked to us. And I said, first of all, I just want to know, like, if you're struggling here, we want to walk with you and shepherd you and pastor you well if you're struggling with this particular sin issue. And she said, no, I'm really not, but I've got a lot of friends that do, and I want to show compassion to them. And I said to her, your desire to be compassionate compassionate is a good motive. But we cannot sacrifice truth on the altar of compassion. As Christians, we cannot deviate from the truth of God's Word in the name of compassion because that's not compassion. That's deception. Satan is so smooth in how he operates. He knows if he can take something that God calls sin, if he can wrap it in this sort of other, other casing and make it seem like if you don't accept this, 
You're not being compassionate and merciful and gracious. And so it becomes this nobility issue of, are you going to be compassionate or not? It's like, well, look, that's not the issue. We are supposed to be compassionate and gracious and merciful, but that cannot mean that we celebrate sin and embrace sin as a result of it, because that's not compassion. That's deception. In fact, think of it like this. Jesus is the most compassionate being who ever walked on the face of the earth. Is he not? We agree with that? Like you and I, we can't out-compassion him. He, he, he takes us by a mile, if not more. We can't out-compassion Jesus. And so if you're someone who says, okay, I want to be compassionate, so I'm going to embrace certain things that God calls sin, well, then you are claiming to be more compassionate than Jesus himself because Jesus himself never embraced sin. He never celebrates sin. And so you and I can't out-compassion Jesus. I don't want to play that game with him. He wins that game, hands down. And so Jesus never embraced sin, but he still shows love and compassion. I heard a recent talk on this passage by a guy named Mark Driscoll. I want to ask you some questions here that get to our last question of how we can be tempted to become like Pergamum. But first I want to address just one thing. If you're someone that you don't consider yourself a believer, if you don't say that you're a follower of Christ, and I want to just say to you very quickly here that my hope is that you'll put your life in Christ's hands, you'll surrender your life to him, come to know him, follow him, and then walk in obedience. That's my hope for you this morning. But I'm really talking this morning more about someone who claims the name of Christ. You say you're a Christ follower, but you are choosing to willfully and defiantly rebel against God in certain sin areas of your life. You're choosing to walk in sin. And so the first question I want to ask us is this next one. Are we compromising sexually? Are we compromising sexually in our culture? And I'm referring to our own church here when I say this. And I've been praying all week that as I talk about this topic here this morning, that I have the right tone, the right attitude. I do not want to come across this morning as some pompous, self-righteous, arrogant preacher. I want to come to you with humility this morning, knowing we all struggle. But I also want to know, I want want you to know that if you're someone who prays, pray for me while I talk about this with our congregation. Because you might say to yourself, okay, here we go again. Gary's always talking about sexuality up here or pornography or Dave and Tim are always talking about that down at the Outback with the junior high and high school students. And you're right, we talk about it a lot. But here's what I tell my students. Because I know sexuality can be, can be confusing to them. Because it's the one thing that we look at and say, okay, it's a gift from God. It's, it's, it's godly. God honors it when it's done the right way. Um, so before you become married, it's sinful if you engage there. But after marriage, it's not sinful. So before marriage, it is God says, no, no, no. But after marriage, God says, yes, you may. And it's the only thing that's like that that I can think of. Like nothing else is like that. Murder's not like that, right? It's not, okay, before you're married, thou shalt not kill. After you're married, well, just kill whoever you want, right? It's not, that's not how it works. So nothing else is, has that weird dichotomy to it, and so it can confuse people. People can be like, well, it seems like it's a gift from God, so why does it really matter? And so I want to spend some time this morning just talking about 
what is the big deal? Because if I were to ask you the question at your seat, okay, tell me why is sexuality outside of marriage, why is it wrong? Most of you would just be like, well, I guess the Bible says so. Well, it's true, it does. But why does the Bible say so? So I want to address this for a moment here. So you understand why God says this is the case. Here's the deal. God designed marriage to be a picture of his relationship to his people. And that relationship is based on a covenant, based on a promise. And so this is why marriage is based on a covenant. It's based on a promise. And in that covenant relationship, there is blessing. And sexuality is one of those blessings. So yesterday, I go to a wedding of a former student of mine. And they're doing this the right way. And there's this big celebration. Why do we celebrate this covenant decision between a a man and a woman? We do it because God gave us that as a gift to paint a picture of his relationship to his people. And so whenever you and I experience anything sexually outside of that covenant bond of marriage, we are perverting the picture that God's trying to paint for us. And so sex outside marriage is wanting Anything sexual outside of marriage is wanting the blessing of marriage without the commitment of marriage. And this is what Israel was guilty of over and over and over again because they wanted the blessing of God without the commitment to God. And so whenever you and I engage sexually in any way outside of marriage, what we're saying is, I want just a part of you. I don't want all of you. And Israel did the same thing with God. They would say, God, we want your blessing, but we also want idolatry. We want your blessing. We also want sexual immorality. And so we can't divide things like that. So many of you think, some of you might think that God's being a killjoy when he says no. No, he's trying to increase your joy. He's trying to increase joy, not kill joy. And so I want to address just a few things that I think we see in our church specifically. And the one that probably grieves me the most as a high school pastor, and I want to ask you this question. Are you living with someone that you're not married to? Are you sexually involved with someone that you're not married to? Because this, this grieves us right now as a leadership team. I've been talking to our staff and people in our church, and it just seems, I don't know if it's because I've just been more exposed to the adult part of our church, like being up here more and whatnot, but it just seems like everywhere I turn, whether it's parents of students that I have at the Outback, or uh, people I meet, it just seems like it's just par for the course in our church right now to be living with someone you're not married to. That's just what you do. And that's just, people just do that, right? That's just what we do here. And I think it, it grieves us as a leadership team. It, I think it grieves Jesus. Now my notes are all blurry, I can't see them. But I want to remind you, if you're not a believer yet, then I'm glad you're here. I hope you start following Christ and you start obeying him. But I'm talking more to people that claim the name of Christ. 
but want to accommodate to the culture. Because this is rampant in the church today. It's rampant in the church today. Especially here in the Bible Belt. We make all kinds of excuses as to why it's okay. And I want to tell you today, if if you claim Christ, and this is, you're sinning sexually in this area of your life. If you claim to know Christ, and you've got kids, your kids are watching you. And they're really good at sniffing out hypocrisy. I mean, my own kids are five and eight years old, and if, if I'm a little bit off doing something, they, they're like, Daddy, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. I mean, the Bible says my kids are good at that, and they're five and eight. Your teens are good at sniffing out hypocrisy. And I'll just tell you, if, if I assume if your daughter or son is involved sexually and you bring them to me for counseling, you're going to want me to tell them to repent to live in purity, to walk in holiness, to listen to God's word. I'm going to assume you want me to say that to them. And so in my time as a youth pastor here at the church, I'll tell you that there's something that my students want me to tell you as the adults. And they want me to tell you to repent, to live in purity. To walk in holiness. to listen to his word. Because what's going to happen at some point, uh, they're going to wise up and they're going to say, all right, someone's lying. Is it you, mom and dad? Or is it this book? Someone's lying. Is it you, mom and dad? Or is is it Dave and Timothy Outback? And my hope and prayer is that I just hope there's repentance before that day comes. I really do. I really do. And I know it's hard. I mean, you might say to me, well, you know, I'm 45, I'm single, I'm lonely, and I get that. I empathize with that. But it's also hard being 16, single and lonely. And they need to see an adult generation that bears up under the pressure of the culture An adult generation that prioritizes holiness over happiness. They need to see it lived out from us. And so I'm hoping for repentance before that day comes. I want to ask you some more questions this morning as we close our time. And and first question is, is our identity formed by Christ or by culture? Is identity formed by Christ or by culture? Where do you get your identity from? Is it from Christ himself or is it from the culture around you? The people here in this church, they yielded to culture, not to Christ. And so will you cave to culture in the name of compassion, in the name of love? Also, are we compromising socially? You can imagine in that culture, in that day, there were lots and lots of parties going on. There was lots of immorality and drunkenness and pagan feasts. And what's really funny about that, if you look back at ancient sin, sin has not changed one bit. Like, we are so not creative in our sin, are we? (laughs) That's all we got. That's it. Get drunk. Engage sexually. That's all we got. And so are you compromising socially just to fit in to the culture around you? You can imagine the pressure back then that they had 
just to fit in socially. And they go to these feasts, these pagan feasts, just to fit in socially. Are we compromising biblically? Do you pick and choose what to believe from the Bible? When the Bible says unpopular things, do you just chuck it out? Now, I don't agree with that. Tim Keller has this really interesting quote. He says this, If God is perfect and we are not, then at some point the Bible will offend us. So if God is holy and perfect and righteous, and I am unholy and imperfect and unrighteous, then at some point the Bible is going to grate up against me. I'm going to see things that I don't like. The Bible is going to be offensive to me. And that goes for all of us. And so you, you just chuck out whatever you don't agree when it comes to the Bible. And so I want to show you in verse 16, after all of this, what is it that Jesus really wants? Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one, I'll get to that last verse in a a moment. But in 16 and 17, what does Jesus want? He wants repentance. And repentance is not some laborious, burdensome thing. It is a gift from Him. He gives us the gift of repentance. The gift of turning from sin and turning back towards Him. And so my, my goal today is not to shame anybody. My goal today is not to shame you. It's to convict us. And they're not the same thing. Shame and conviction are not the same thing. Shame is all about us. How I look, my image, my perception, how people see me. Conviction is all about Jesus. And so the, the proper response to when, when you're convicted about sin is not to say, oh, how, how can I possibly forgive myself or love myself? No, get past yourself. You focus on Jesus. Focus on Him because when you're truly convicted by your sin in a godly way, you take it to Him and the cross. Shame is all about you, all about image, how you look. And so shame leads to a false repentance. Conviction leads to a real repentance. And so I know this passage is a hard passage. It's a convicting passage. It's a heavy repentance passage. I get that. And so my question for you this morning is, are you ready for some good news? Are you ready for some good news this morning? And so look with me at the next passage. This is amazing what Jesus says. He says, To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, what in the world is he talking about? How is that good news? Here's how this is good news. This is what Christ wants to do for those who repent. He refers to hidden manna. What is that? If you recall back to the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, they, they had a bread-like substance drop out of heaven for them to eat while they're in the wilderness. And so Jesus is saying here, to the one who conquers, to the one who repents, I'm going to give him some hidden manna. I'm going to be his sustenance. So just like I provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, I'm going to provide for the, for the people in Pergamum in their wilderness of their city. And so if you repent and turn to me, I'm going to be your sustenance. I'm going to take care of you in your city. He says, I'll give you a white stone. That means he was going to declare them innocent and righteous. In a court of law back then, you're given a white stone if you're innocent, a black stone if you're guilty. 
Jesus says, I'm going to give you your innocence. I'm going to declare you righteous if you repent and turn to me. Then he says, I'm going to give you a new name. Jesus did not die just to forgive sin. He died to change us, to transform us, to make us into new people, new individuals. And so Jesus is saying here in this little short section that he is their sustenance, that he is their righteousness, and he's going to change their identity. And this is what Jesus offers to someone when they come to him and they repent. They don't get shame. They get a new name. They don't get shame. They get sustenance from Jesus because he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And so this morning I want to move into a time of just reflection and prayer together as a body, communion. And so we're going to be doing this a little bit differently today. I'm going to invite Mark and the guys to come down front and the men are going to spread out throughout some stations throughout the auditorium here. And we're doing this a little bit differently today. Instead of them passing it out, you're going to be staying in your seat for a few moments and just praying and reflecting on what you've heard today. And while Mark plays here in a moment, uh, you'll stay seated. And then whenever you feel ready, you're going to get out and go to some of these men that are around the auditorium, throughout the auditorium. You're going to take communion from them. And then you're going to exit out once you've done that in a moment. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning. Let's pray. God, we're just so grateful that you're a God who loves us the way that you do. We're so grateful that we get to have you be our sustenance, have you be our bread, have you be our Savior, our Messiah. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that you care for your churches. We thank you that you care for your church to write letters to these churches so we can glean from that as well. How much you care for us in your grace is just astounding. We thank you for it. We pray as we partake in your broken body and your blood shed for us this morning, Lord, that that truth would sink in to our hearts and souls today. I pray if anyone here does not know you and does not claim to be a follower of you, that they might put their faith and trust in your saving work on the cross this morning, Father. We pray that happens this morning, Father, for someone that's here. We thank you for your grace and your love for us, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.